Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. In this episode, I'm talking with Jason Palomera. Jason was in law enforcement for 20 years with NYPD and recently retired in 2020. Jason and I connected over Instagram and I instantly wanted to talk with him because he was with NYPD and because Jason was a cold case detective, a role I've long wanted to cover. Jason had a rather inauspicious beginning to his law enforcement career. As you will find on his LinkedIn page, he writes, I became a cop on July 2nd, 2001. Two months later, I would respond to Ground Zero. Jason was still in the academy when 9-11 happened. We discuss his memories of that day, sitting in class, and then being sent out in his gray recruit uniform because it was all hands on deck. As many of you know, I also lived in New York during 9-11, so we will be talking about that shared experience. Later in 2006, Jason was assigned to the Detective Bureau with the 84th Precinct Detective Squad in downtown Brooklyn and while there, investigated all types of crimes. Then in 2015, he was assigned to the Cold Case Homicide Squad. As I said, I've long wanted the chance to show how hard homicide and cold case detectives work to solve their cases. You will hear in our conversation how deeply personal these cases were to Jason and the impact the investigations had on him, both the rewards and the challenges. During his time with Cold Case, Jason became a peer support member with the NYPD Health and Wellness Section. Since retiring, he has remained committed to health and wellness for veterans and law enforcement. He got training for and works as a crisis counselor. He is a keynote speaker and life coach. And he has written a book with co-author Barbara Rubel called Living Blue, which will be coming out soon. As he says, it's really for anyone living blue, but the book does cover law enforcement from recruitment to retirement. And we spend a fair amount of time talking about the emotional challenges of retirement, which are not, as far as I know, frequently discussed. Jason, I'm going to bring you in now. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I do want to, I know you're doing a lot of work currently. Before we jump into your law enforcement career, what are you currently doing? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So currently I am the director of veteran and first responder engagement for a company called Forge Health. And what we do with Forge is we provide through Forge VFR, which is inside of Forge Health, we provide uh, mental health and substance programs for active duty military veterans, regardless of your just discharge status, all first responders and their family members, which is an important, important component. And then you did mention that you do some volunteer work as a crisis counselor, which in, among other things includes responding to the 988 suicide support line. That's correct. I volunteer at a crisis center and the 988 line is one of uh, many uh, crisis lines that, that we do answer in that crisis center. Yes. Oh, that is such important work. First of all, thank you for reaching out to me on Instagram. That's how we met. And I initially instantly wanted to talk to you in, in part because of NYPD, because NYPD means so much to me, but also because you used to do cold cases. I've been, as I said in the open, I've been wanting to talk to someone about cold cases, and I know some departments now call them unsolved cases. 
But I've been wanting to talk about cold cases, not just because everyone finds them fascinating, but because I feel that people really don't understand how much work goes into those investigations, as well as homicide investigations, and how hard all of those detectives work to get those cases solved. You know, I sometimes feel I hear people criticizing the police for giving up or not being able not releasing information or not being able to solve the case within a certain period of time. And it just seems to me that they don't know the, all the elements that go into it, all the challenges, but that you never stop fighting. That is the one thing I want people to know is that you never stop trying. Well, I appreciate you asking and I appreciate the, the passion you have for speaking with cops and, and learning their stories, because I think that is such a huge uh, missing component in life today is that we don't care enough about others, other people's stories. And I think we do a lot of healing if, if we, we cared a lot more. Um, so thank you. But since I mentioned 9-11 in the open, and it uh, certainly, I mean, I just can't imagine two months on the job. So tell me how that day unfolded. 9-11. Uh, I joined the police department, started, like you said, on July 2nd, 2001, and just a little over two months later, as everyone knows, uh, September 11th happened. We were, in, we were in the police academy. We started our day like any other, any other academy morning. I was in law class. Uh, our instructor uh, went out to the hallway. There was a lot of commotion. You could see through the, the small window in the door that there was other instructors in the hall uh, and that they were, they, were, they were talking. He came back in and he said we all needed to muster back up out into the hallway, basically get information, and to proceed down to the auditorium. We did. When we got to the auditorium, they said that we, had been, we, we were attacked. The city was attacked. Right away, we all, I know I did, and I know a few others thought it was just a drill. We're in academy. Mm -hmm. It's training. Right. So this is just part of part of our lesson. They initially told us that all officers, uh, all female officers and those that had children would remain seated and everybody else to muster back up out into the, the hallway outside the auditorium. And that quickly changed before we actually left the auditorium to everybody. I, I have uh, to I just have to interrupt. Why would they say women and people with children? I, I have no idea. It is something I'll never forget. Uh, I, I don't know why. I never asked why, uh, but it was a very quick, uh, fleeting thing. It was. It didn't last more than a few minutes from okay. how, how my memory serves me, uh, and it was now everybody. Everybody's okay. required now to go out. Um, okay. There were uh, there was one officer from my company that that left that said that's it. I'm I'm not doing this. Oh really? Which made it really really real. And then uh, it was about a month and a half, I believe we we were out. Uh, various different posts. Where did they send you? Where were you stationed? So day one that night, we went right to the 34th Street and the Midtown Tunnel, uh, and we were tasked with directing traffic. We were recruits in gray uniforms uh, with no n nothing else but our our, re our recruit uniforms and our instructors uh, telling people mm. what to do when they were dealing with their own stressful situations. Uh, and we learned, I learned very quickly why they sent us out with our academy instructors, because folks knew that we were not real cops yet, but yet we were there telling them what to do. So it was a pretty surreal experience, uh, especially for somebody that was so fresh out of uh, formal school years and now with authority thrust upon them in, in one of the, 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 the most horrific days that, you know, we've experienced. Yeah. yeah. I'll never forget, I, I, this had to have been a, a couple of days later, uh, but I remember being on a post somewhere with my recruit class and seeing 
marked police cars from other states as far out as the West Coast <laughs> driving through the city. That was surreal for me. They didn't belong there. It didn't, it didn't fit. That, that was, again, that's something I'll never forget. And because it just meant what? It, it, it meant that um, it was, this was to a scale that none of us had ever. Remember, I, I had just came out of, I just came out of high school. Mm. Uh, I graduated high school um, and worked, excuse me, back up. I graduated high school, went straight to the military, got out of the military, worked a very short period of time in the private sector before I was able to start the police academy. So yes, I did serve for three years in the military, but I had never experienced anything mm. like this. And then were you involved in helping in the recovery, rescue and recovery? Yeah, so most of what I did, I know cops from the academy had various jobs. You know, Some had the post at the morgue, some had a post at the landfill. Mm. Um, we had a lot of traffic posts, a lot of standing on corners, right? There was one day in particular that I actually was, was terrified that day. And it was a day that my partner and I, she and I, we, they put us on one of the city buses that were lined up outside the academy, MTA city buses that were taking us to and from the academy down to various spots down at Ground Zero. And they told us that when you get there, uh, locate the highest ranking person mm. you could find, let them know you're from the academy as if it wasn't obvious uh, <laughs> and uh, ask them what, what they needed you to do. And we got there and we were standing in front of uh, One Liberty Plaza. We were standing there and somebody yelled that One Liberty was coming down. <sighs> the wind was blowing glass. And obviously didn't know that at the time the glass was falling. Somebody yells, it's coming down. She and I started running. We ran until we just stopped running because it was clear. Nothing was coming down. There was, uh, we were not buried. And we just stood there looking at each other, trying to catch our breaths. And we found the phone that was in soot by our feet. And we, I know we had some kind of conversation about it. Like, oh man, we just found a victim's phone. Like, what do we do? And it rang. Mm -hmm. So we answered it and it was, turns out it was another cop. You found my phone. Where are you? Uh, we told her where we were. A few minutes later, cop comes running up, grabs the phone, thanks us and off she, thanked us and off she went. Mm -hmm. Um, that day was probably the roughest for me because I had never felt that. Uh, I remember running and feeling that that impending doom. Like when is it? When is it going to happen? Mm -hmm. And it never did, of course. But that was that was rough. That was something I'll, I'll never forget. I can't imagine actually being down there thinking the building was coming down on you. You know, there was just so much going on, so much chaos. I know you have something very meaningful from that day framed on the wall behind you if you can tell my audience what that is yeah so again your viewers can't see but i this is my um memo book from that day and it's uh yes tuesday september 11th 01 i started my my day at 707 i mustered at 7 15 i was in behavioral science at 7 30 9.30, I was in law class, and I have law class change the auditorium due to mobilization, and that, that was my entry. So at 9.30, it had already happened, and they pulled us down to the auditorium. And what you're reading is a log? 
It's a, it's called a memo book. It's uh, every officer is required to have it. Uh, not just in the academy, just in the police department. Uh, so yes, that was that was my uh, my first first memo book. So I just interviewed a detective, Nako Nolan. We've established that you didn't know each other because NYPD is, or at least at that time, was thirty thousand strong. So you don't all know each other. Mm-hmm. But among the things that he was saying is working the pile, trying to find survivors, mm-hmm. and. He said that he and others hoped that there was maybe this gap in the subway system, like this air pocket, where maybe people had were had gotten trapped under the rubble, and maybe he would they would find people still alive. But it was not to happen. No, and you know, you 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 turn up another memory I remember in the beginning, and that was the the feeling that there was um, a chance that there were survivors, and there was. I mean, uh, I'm sure he might have mentioned the same thing. There are photos all over the city. You probably remember all the photos yeah. of missing loved ones all over the city. And to see that slowly start to, to fade after folks started to realize that it was, it was a recovery effort at that point. All right. Yeah, I, that remains one of the hardest parts was the, the signs of the missing. Yeah. And, you know, for those who have listened to the NACO episode, I'm sorry to repeat myself but for those who haven't these were signs these were handmade flyers people put up all over the city subway stops everywhere i think initially people thought maybe their loved ones had been taken to the hospital and because everybody had to leave they didn't have any idea on them so this hope was that they were at a hospital somewhere and we just don't know what hospital so have you seen them have you seen them and then this very painful realization that they were all gone right yeah it was um you know he he was much more involved than i but it was you know everyone has their own experience everyone has their own connection somehow to Mm. that day and that time again just the fact that the conversation is still happening that yeah stuff like this is occurring right in interviews like this and and talking about it, it 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 helps for it not to be forgotten, yeah. uh, nor the victims. So, right for you as a police officer or beginning your career, I mean, you said one person mm-hmm. quit. Mm-hmm. What did that do to you mentally, emotionally? It was a mixed bag of emotions. It was a long, long, long days. Travel all the way back to Long Island, all the way back the next day to work, and it was. Um, we used to carpool uh, myself and a bunch of guys from the uh, bunch of other recruits from the academy, my academy class. And at the very beginning, it was uh, the LIE, Long Island Expressway, was closed to, to mm-hmm. civilian traffic. I don't know if any people remember that, but I remember going from Long Island to Manhattan in no time because we were the only ones. Anyone that was on the road, you knew they were another cop. Mm. We'd get to the Midtown Tunnel and we didn't even stop. They were just waving us through. And you remember the people standing with the thank you signs and... Boy, do I. Yeah. You know, I think we had mentioned, we had spoken about this. I started the police. I started my police career with everyone loving the police mm. uh, yeah. at 9-11. And I left the police department just a little bit of the opposite <laughs> right. in September of 2020. Right. Um, so right. it, was, it was quite the opposite side of the spectrum. Right. But I do remember that. I had many posts on the West Side Highway and there were folks out there. They baked stuff for us. They were... Uh, waters and it was just the signs and um, it was nonstop every day. As I said to Nako, thank you for 
did what you did. I, I, I'm going to call you an NYPD officer, even though you're still in training. Thank you for what you did during that time. Thank you. And then when would you have graduated the academy and been on the street? So uh, we graduated the academy, I uh, see, uh, that following May. Okay. And before we get into the work that you did, what made you choose law enforcement? Great question. It was just something that is that always appealed to me. I remember I have a photo actually of uh, myself and my friend Ernest right after, soon after we we met in the Navy, and uh, I'm wearing an NYPD T-shirt. <laughs> Nobody in my family's a cop. I'm the first one. Wow. Um, others have served in the military. My dad was is a Vietnam veteran. Mm. Uh, he served in the Army. Uh, my uncle was in the Navy. Uh, but no one was ever a cop, and it was just it was just something that uh, that I always wanted to do. Do you know why? Do I know why? Uh, you <laughs> know, I, you why? Know, <laughs> my why? You know, after all these years, I could. It's you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I can, I can, I can look back and say, it's that. And there's so many folks with the same, likely with the same answer. It's that that passion to serve other people. And you 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 started in the beginning about how the public maybe sometimes views cops and these are folks that have a passion for something greater than themselves but the majority of cops are good humans that want to help other humans and it is a profession like no other and besides the military that you join knowing that part of the job description is the potential to give your life for somebody else's whether it's your partner or another another human that you're entrusted to protect there is no other job like that so it's easy for us to forget when you're reading the news or, or, or reading the newspaper, or watching the news or, or seeing things in the media that these people that are out there in uniform every day do it at the detriment to their own mental health and wellness, their own family's uh, stability day in and day out. Um, so I, to answer your question, I think it's just that, that inner passion to just put your fellow man in, in front of yourself. And again, I'll end with it's 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 shared by so many men and women in in uniform. One of the things you and I talked about in the pre-interview is, you know, you're going call to call to call to call, and you mentioned, I, I don't know if this was an actual day. I think you said it was. You went to a robbery in progress, then to an assault where a woman was covered in blood. Is this correct? Yeah. And then you want to tell you should, it's your story. I shouldn't tell it. Yeah. You know, you know, I think what I was trying to convey is that, you know, you know, somebody's everyday life, uh, you, you might experience one, two, three, four traumatic incidents, excuse me, in the course of their lifetime and everybody's different, but an officer will, will go to that many sometimes in the course of one tour and then come back the next day and do it again and again and again and again. For sometimes 20 plus years, I retired my with my partner. Uh, my partner retired uh, with with four, 40 years on the job. 40 years. Wow. 40 years, and um, you know that's 40 years of day in and day out trauma. Yeah, I'm not sure how any officer does it. So you were you be, you were assigned to the detective bureau in 2006. You investigated all types of crimes over those nine years, and then when you're in the squad as a detective. You're investigating crimes within, from the precinct level. Right. So, you know, myself, like any other detective in, in any of the precinct detective squad, they investigate the, the crimes that happen within the confines of that precinct. Uh, so anything that happened within the 84th precinct, 
the confines of the 84th Precinct, um, were investigated by those detectives. And that could be homicide, that could be DV, that could be robbery. Right, right. that could be homicide, domestic violence, robbery, anything. Um, when it's a homicide, that precinct detective will investigate that homicide, um, but he does it, he or she does it in conjunction with a homicide detective from the Homicide Bureau, right? That could be in the 84th Precinct's concern, uh, scenario, that would be Brooklyn North Homicide. So those okay. detectives would work that case together. Okay. And when those cases went unsolved or cold, uh, we can get into why that might happen. Uh, yeah. That's where, you know, a cold case detective would find themselves maybe looking into. So let's do that. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you were on the cold case homicide squad. And, and as you just said, when a, a case goes cold and so, yes, how does that happen? Yeah. So I, I went to the cold case squad in 2015 and how, how does a case get cold, uh, go cold in many ways, right? I'll address right away. There's, there's a lot of times I saw during my career that, you know, maybe the public wasn't so happy that certain cases were investigated over, over others. There were family members that would call or reach out to us. Why isn't my case, my son, my daughter, whomever's case not being investigated. There's unfortunately way too many unsolved murders or murders in general in the city of New York. There's only so many detectives and they'll go cold for many reasons. One, you know, the cases we investigated, I investigated in cold case, they had the benefit of time. A lot of people might think that, you know, time might be a detriment. Uh, but in the case of a cold case, now I have the ability to take a detached perspective and look at this case. I could read everything that was done prior to me opening it. I could look at all the interviews. I, look, I could look at all the evidence because I have now the benefit of time. When a homicide happens, it's happening right then and there. Uh, and they have to adjust quickly. Now, I had a bit of a, a leg up, right? Because I can see what transpired over the course of th those years. Also, there's been advancement in technology, right? Your DNA technology has advanced. Forensics have advanced. Video technology has advanced. And there's also something that a lot of folks don't think about. You might have witnessed a crime. You might have been directly involved. You might have been scared to speak up when that crime happened. The passage of time, you've gotten older. You, you've grown a little further from that situation of the people involved in it. You, you feel a little bit more free to talk. Mm -hmm. I, we encountered that a lot where folks wouldn't talk when the crime happened many, many years later, you know, have no problem speaking to, to the police because they've grown up, they've matured, they've, they've gone on with their lives. So again, that benefit of time, that space was of, was of value in many regards to a cold case. Before I forget, and I know people have asked you and you have no involvement in the Gilgo uh, serial killer, but he was on Long Island. You're from Long Island. You were a cold case investigator. What, what was your reaction to his arrest and how they found him? Uh, just probably fascinated like everybody else watching <laughs> it unfold. I, I can't say I was surprised myself and, and other detectives in cold, other amazing detectives in cold case dealt with all types of different murderers, right? Nothing surprised, surprised us uh, when the details of who he was and his, his life and his personality is still being revealed in the media. It's, it's not a surprise. Um, no, I did not live anywhere near him. Uh, <laughs> I did not know who he was. I had no interaction with him. But again, just probably fascinated like everybody else, especially now that I'm on the other side of things and retired. Now that I'm no longer investing, investigating the cases, uh, again, just uh, probably as interested as you are.
Yeah. So your case gets handed to you. What's your first step? Um, one, yes, like you said, it could be handed to us. Hey, you know, I'd like you to look into this case. It could be self-initiated. So I think it was around 2005, 2006, the computer system was was changed and all the cases were, were in the computer. And we were able to look at, at these cases now in what was called ECMS. We would look into these cases, but the older, older cases were all in microfilm, microfiche, mm. I think it was called. So we would go down to one police plaza and we'd, we'd look through the microfilm of these cases and look at all the reports on them. Uh, we'd go to the commands themselves and go into the storage rooms and pull out some of these old homicides where all the paper files were located and we'd, 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 we'd reopen them. Again, re- self-initiated, directed to look into something, a family member uh, or somebody involved in a case would call and say, you know, I'd like you to, you know, can you look back into this case? It would, so in a number of ways. Well, you had told me a couple of stories. You mentioned Chanel, who was 16. If the cases that uh, if you ask that I would, I would be more than happy to talk about in regards to my time in cold case would be the case of Chanel Petro Nixon. Yes, she was a 16-year-old girl. Her case has not gone to trial yet, so I'll be very limited mm. with what I tell you. But um, she was uh, strangled uh, and stuffed in uh, garbage bags and left out uh, on the curb uh, in Brooklyn to be picked up by, tri- by, by sanitation. And only um, because the sanitation workers tried to lift the bags and they were too heavy. They uh, didn't pick them up and uh, notified the homeowner uh, that they were too heavy. Uh, and that's how they found Chanel. Yeah. So what made that a cold case? So again, what made that a cold case? Chanel's case went cold because the detectives worked tirelessly on that case. But again, priorities changed and cases happened. And the passage of time, uh, attention needed to be diverted elsewhere. And again, it's by no no fault of, of the, the, the only reason why these cold cases, one of the biggest reasons these cold cases are solved by cold case detectives is because of the work done prior to us even putting our hands on them. What, what, is, what is done in some of these cases might not be valuable at that time, but years later proved to be uh, of immense value. And again, because of the work done prior to us even touching these cases, it's why any of them ever get to the finish line. And were you able to bring hers to closure? You said it hasn't gone to trial, but you were able to successfully investigate it to the point where it can go to trial? The person who took her life will be uh, seeing the inside of a courtroom very soon. Wow. And so I don't, I guess you probably can't go into how you figured that one out since it hasn't gone to trial. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot that folks can look at in the media about Chanel Petronixon's case. But what I'll tell you is that how we found who it was. Uh, in this particular case, it was someone that was known in the investigation from the beginning. Um, hmm. That was a suspect from the beginning. But again, I talk about the passage of time. I was able to now, we were able to, as a cold case squad, to look at his life and all he had done since that crime, since her murder, uh, which... Uh, added to the investigation immensely. Uh, hmm. Re-interviews of witnesses and people involved in the case uh, and putting everything together, it provided us enough to to secure a grand jury indictment. It'll be um, seen court hopefully very soon. And I think you said your daughter was the same age at that yeah. time. 
Yeah, Chanel's case was tough for me because amongst a few of the others that I investigated, she was the same age as my daughter at the time I was investigating that case. And, uh, you know, we could say we don't bring it home and I'm sure that'll that'll segue itself into why I'm in the mental health space today. But then it also has to do with, too, what people don't see behind the scenes. It took every minute, well, my waking minutes and my my, my dreams, uh, that case. I've said it before and it bears saying again, when I was home, I was more distant at home than I was when I wasn't at home because I would always think about that case. And you know what? If you asked me today, would I do it all again the same way? I'd probably tell you yes, because that's what those cases I felt I feel need. You're absolute any and everything. You're every bit of attention and effort, but it does come at the detriment of your family. There's lots of missed birthdays, lots of missed anniversaries, lots of events attended without you because you're you're working. And that's what people don't see. I would always think about those the her case and, and other cases. I still think about those cases. So how long did her case take to solve? I believe I picked up Chanel's case uh, soon after getting to cold case. So I would say it was probably probably 2016. My partner, Evelyn Gutierrez, and I worked on that case uh, uh, nonstop for probably a, a year. When you say you you were so immersed in finding the answer, tell me more about that. I mean, why this is your every waking moment? Yeah, you know, f- again, f- for me, and, and and I know this is shared by probably... Uh, every detective that's that's doing this kind of work it's um for me it was it was it was a bit of it was a challenge and it was you there's somebody there out there that believes that they took a life and they're clear and they're good mm. and it was my job it was it's our job to prove you wrong uh and it was i'm not going to i'm gonna win you're not yeah however long it takes. And it's a bit of a, uh, you kind of just get, it's me or you. It's, it's not <laughs> going to be me. It's going to be you. And uh, you don't just don't stop. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the other case you started to bring up, which is Rashan Brazel. Is that what, how you say his name? Yes. I did look it up, but tell me about that case. Yeah. So Rashan's case is a case that I was uh, looking into for quite some time. As things turned out, a good friend of mine, uh, Richie Amato, he's a detective, retired Brooklyn North homicide detective. He uh, he called me up and he said he was retiring and he'd like me to look into a case. And it was Rashawn's case that I was interested in uh, looking at anyway. And we both agreed that I would uh, would, would grab Rashawn's case and 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 investigate it. And uh, he said to me, he says, "Yeah, but not till you meet mom." I said, "Okay, that's that's fine. I mean, I planned on doing that anyway." He said, no, she has to approve of you before you get the case. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, that's fine. He said, okay. I said, she's, he, he said, she's tough. I said, okay. So I remember it was one morning. Uh, we, we met at a diner in downtown Brooklyn. And uh, it was me, Richie, and uh, Miss Brazell. We had a nice conversation. And uh, I, I'll, I'll preface with we are, uh, she's family to me today. Uh, but that was my first, this was my first interaction with her. And um, I'll just say tough and I'll leave it at that. She was, she was, she was tough and I have no problem telling you. I was, I was a little intimidated. Um, and I remember she asked me, she says, my, my son is Rashawn being gay, a problem for you in investigating his case. And of course it wasn't, but I was so taken back that she just peppered me with that, like right up, right out of the gate. 
And I said, absolutely not. I said, and I know you need to approve of me investigating your son's case, but um, he's my boss now. And uh, I will, I'm going to work for him and answer to you. Uh, and it was uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship and uh, a really intense investigation. Well, it was a pretty brutal murder. Uh, this is a solved case, so yeah, I assume you can talk. It's on Wikipedia, so tell me about his case. I, I will. I'll also start with it is a solved case, and the person. And I just just to as a sidebar, I'm I'm never going to mention the the person who killed any of these victims. It's, Agreed. There's no need no need to give them any any spotlight. But the person who who killed Rashan also killed. Sharabia Thomas, another young female. And uh, in helping my partner, Evelyn, uh, investigate Sharabia's case, I looked into, well, I was looking into Rashan's case. So, so about, uh, about Rashan's case, Rashan was, uh, went missing on uh, Valentine's Day and he was later found dismembered. In the subway? Yeah, throughout the city. And that's what began. Uh, and again, you know, we go back to the original detectives the work they did in particular in this case. And even though this case is solved and the person was arrested, there's portions of it. I just, uh, you never know when things will come back up, but I'll just say in generalities that there was very, very specific work done by the original case detectives and not only the original case detectives, but the officers that responded to the scene that was done. That was, is so pivotal later on in my investigation, it was invaluable. And at the time, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're a new cop and you're listening to this, you know, you don't feel like you're, you're doing much or you're making much of a difference. You, you have no idea the difference you're making, even in some of these high profile, intense investigations, many, many years later, this case, uh, I believe it was 06. And I was investigating it now in what, 2017, I believe it was. So you might not feel like there's value in, in what you're doing on a day, daily basis, but believe me, there is. And in this case, this was proof that that, that is true because there was really good work done that was very, very helpful in this investigation. And we put enough, just like Chanel's case, we, we put enough evidence together through through interviews, through uh, forensics, through the, the connection it had to Sharabia's case, uh, and again, um, secured an indictment. And then eventual, um, you know, next steps where he was, uh, he was picked up. And what, why did the case go cold? Same reason that they all go cold, like we've talked about. And that's, yeah. um, you know, you, you do the best with what you have at the time. Uh, and in 06, uh, they did the best they could with what they had. And again, in this particular case, the passage of time was very, very valuable. Mm. In, in this case, very valuable in this case. Looking at that case in 06, there's a limited view that you have of everyone in that case. The limited view you have of maybe suspects, of witnesses. Now, years years transpire, years, years happen, and people are living their lives and doing things that become potential value in that original case, right? They might, in, uh, I'm going to bounce real quick over to Chanel's case again, the passage of time gave us people he interacted with that he spoke to that became a value in the original case, but that, 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 that that's not available when it happened. Those people don't okay. exist yet. Right. Mm. Um, mm. That's what we, we look at in cold case. We look at every possible Avenue, uh, any available piece of information 
um, from the very beginning, the first day, time, day it happens all the way up until, you know, uh, we have that case. That case went cold because again, by no fault of the detectives that investigated it, it's just sometimes what happens. Sometimes they just, they just go cold. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about it in the totality where people, you know, this the reason I wanted to talk about this is that people become so critical of law enforcement and they think that you're not working on it. And mm. what you're saying is sometimes it takes this long and it's not that we're not trying. Like, for example, Rashan's mother, how did she feel that it had taken so long? I mean, she asked you if it was, if you had an issue with his being gay, he was also black. So mm -hmm. did she feel that maybe he was, that, that because of those factors, people didn't care about his case? Is that why she asked you that? No. Um, knowing Miss Brazell as well as I do, that, that was not something that she ever expressed to me. Okay. Um, she, I think understands how long these things take. And to the point where she moved to another state and realized that she needed to be closer to keep this going. And she moved back yeah. to Brooklyn. She moved back to Bushwick, Brooklyn to make sure that this didn't, this didn't die. And I will tell you that that's a definite benefit to these types of cases when there's folks that, uh, keep pushing, pushing, pushing. I mean, she is a powerhouse of a mom. <laughs> an absolute powerhouse of a human being and awesome mother, because this case would have never gotten as far. I don't think if she didn't just keep, keep pushing, keep pushing. Well, it's interesting to hear you say, cause sometimes people, they say, you know, I called the detective, but they, they don't, this is what I'm trying to get at. They don't care. They don't take my call. They're not yeah. looking. And so I guess you can't speak for every other cold case detective, but I mean, what I'm hearing is she kept this going. How did she handle the not knowing and then the knowing? How did what, she how, handle the not knowing? Not knowing who knowing. did it. Yeah. And then, because to me, that would be part of what's the, the misery of it is, not just yeah. the murder and the loss. And this was particularly gruesome. But then when it is solved, how did she react? Well, when it is solved, a whole nother part of the process begins. And that's the fight and a process of the district attorney's office. And no matter how you tighten that bow, no matter what silver platter you put it on, just as the police department has their attention in places and, and directives and uh, priorities and what have you, so does the district attorney's office. And in this particular case, and I'll just leave it very simply, the prosecution was declined, uh, and he is luckily not out of free man uh, because he, he took another life. Right. Uh, so he, he won't see the, the light of day. But that's no consolation to, to Miss Brazell. Wow. So, so, yes, she was happy to find out. Uh, not happy to find out who it was. Happy to know it is. It is You'll never, I, I would never want to be in that position. I can only imagine, but just talking to her as often as I did, it's a hole that'll always be there, no matter what answers you get. It's an extra pain, extra bit of pain when the court system that is designed to wrap it all up in the end uh, fails you. And in this case, they failed her. Good God. That's devastating. To say the least. And to you too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know he, he won't see 
he won't see freedom again. And that's, that's great. But to kind of, to your point too, is the amount of work put into these cases and, and don't get me wrong there. I worked with some of the best district attorneys. I think that there are, especially in, in the, in the forensics unit of the Brooklyn district attorney's office and some of the DAs that worked on these cases this time they failed her. Oh my God. Uh, I don't even what to say. These cases take a lot of, a lot of our, our effort. You know, the public doesn't see all of this. Right. They see again, what's in the media, what they read. And if you just start off with maybe I don't know everything, um, yeah. give us the benefit of the doubt and that we're, we're truly working as hard as we have the ability to work on, on your family's cases and believe again, that we're doing it at the detriment of our own. Oh. Um, you might feel a little different. Yeah. Well, you had said these cases consumed you, your every waking thought, your dreams. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> and when you say your dreams, I mean, it, you dream about the victim, you, what, was it, what were the dreams? Oh, uh, you're peeling back the onion. Um, <laughs> you know, I would, I guess I, I would, I would, uh, I did, I did dream about the cases, right? I would dream about the victims. In particular, you know, we, we, you, you get to the nitty gritty and a lot of it's in the book. We talk about a lot of terms that were unfamiliar to me until long after I retired, but the, the secondary traumatic stress, the, uh, the trauma, the constant, hearing of other people's pain. I would, I, I remember there was a time I was investigating uh, Rashawn's case uh, where I would wake up every night crying. Uh, I wouldn't know why. And the more I thought about it, the more I talked to folks about why that could have been happening. And my father was going through some medical concerns at the time. And I always had a fear that the worst would happen. Right. So I was around death. Every case that I had and every detective that worked with me was around death. That's all we dealt with was death, whether it's we're looking at photos, whether we're talking to people about death, whether we're, it's all death. So I would wake up with nightmares about losing my own family. Um, mm. Those, those, those were just some of the uh, sleep disturbances that I, I would have. And they, they eventually just stopped. You did say you brought it home and it affected your family, your wife, your kids. Yeah. So when I say I bring it home and everybody brings it home, every cop I'm sure brings it home differently. I escaped to what I like to describe as my isolation island. I would come home and, you know, it wasn't like I was going to start to explain. Uh, although my wife was always interested in what I did and what I was doing and always made it a comfortable place to unpack, I never wanted to. One, I didn't want to burden her with the terrible things that I was experiencing or hearing or, or seeing or doing. And then I didn't want to talk about it again. Um, so I would, I would um, again, escape to my own little, little island. That isolation caused definite uh, relationship issues. I was slowly chipping away at my, my relationship with my kids. Again, at the time, you know, my daughter during Chanel's case was the same age. How did you? Yeah, I overprotective to a teenage girl. Good luck with that. Didn't <laughs> uh, didn't work out so well. But my mother told me probably gave me some of the best advice when I was going through all that. And while on my isolating campaign, she said, "Don't ever stop talking to her. Don't mm -hmm. ever stop talking to them, no matter what. 
And uh, it was hard to see through the the teenage years that, you know, there, there was light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we, we eventually found it again. That took some work. You and I talked about the lieutenant's daughter, Catherine Boyle, and yeah. how she's trying to help families with this piece of it. She's created a program called Beyond the Uniform to help officers connect with or stay connected with their spouses and their families. She and I talk about that in my interview with her in episode 46. You say you bring it home and how could you not, but then not being able to talk about it. Like, I think what you said was, I had a line here somewhere. You said, I wasn't going to come home and say, honey, do you want to know about the dead body? Right. Again, everybody's different, but I took the stance of, I'm just going to, uh, keep it to myself. I'm not going to talk about it. And I wasn't in the right frame of mind to try to understand and see through her perspective, mm-hmm. right? It's I'm not, I'm not talking or I'm quiet or I'm to myself, you know, whatever. And it's, he's not talking to me or mm-hmm. right. And that creates, you're not sharing and it just creates arguments. And then listen, I'm not a marriage counselor, but um, I just learned through my own our own struggles. Once I understood that what I was doing was unhealthy and it hit a, a critical a critical point where I had to make the decision. You know, a lot of people can tell you when, you know, maybe of a, a, a situation that caused them to say, oh, you know, I need to make a change in my life. I remember there was a time where uh, my wife and I were arguing, one, one of many, and uh, she was sitting on the couch in our living room and uh, I was to her right standing she was sitting on the couch. I was standing to her right. And uh, she looked at me and she was crying. She said she was done and it sliced right through me. And um, I realized at that point that I had to um, definitely make some changes. So it just, it began the catalyst to, I tried to fix all the different brush fires that were happening and it was just not working. So I, I said, yeah, I, maybe I need to change me for me first. Uh, and then everything else will fall into place. And that's that's what happened. And it took a long time, but I started to work on me. It was just uh, work on the source first and then uh, see what happens. Because uh, I can't help the other relationships and situations if I don't know how to help myself. And how did you do it? Well, uh, getting over the, uh, the thought that I wasn't uh, worthy at that point for fixing. My faith plays a big part in it. I didn't see it at the time, but I, I felt at that point For those that can relate, I felt at that point that I wasn't deserving of it, of the fixing. Uh, So I kind of resorted to just the, hey, this is the lot that I've laid for myself in life. This is my bed. I must, I got to lay in it. I've caused too much damage for fixing. And again, my faith plays a big Mm. part in it. And it's, I'm exactly who God wants to fix. So I started, how did I do it? I, I started listening to people that have gone through struggles. I've started listening to people that have similar situations. I started reading folks that same thing, had their own struggles. There's so many amazing first responders that have written books that I've gotten to meet my own writing process now that are just fantastic humans. And the simple sharing of their story changed me and helped my process and my journey. And that's kind of what created the the thought of, well, I, I want to do the same. This Leo culture, the law enforcement culture, it, it's a two-sided coin where we circle the wagons and protect ourselves from the, maybe the vitriol from the public, right? Or um, when when something happens, uh, we'll be the first to, uh, to, 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 to be there for our, our brothers and sisters. But when in our own personal lives, things go wrong, uh, we tend to uh, not reach out for help. 
that very circle of folks that right. we we depend on for some situations we we forget about in others and the culture sometimes is uh, and, I, and I write a lot about this um, is is sometimes um, is is a negative in that it perpetuates the hey suck it up kid right you you got this no nobody pulled me aside and said hey do, are you good you know I know that we just had a really tough tough call I remember I had a we called a jumper you know somebody jumped off the roof of the the housing development. And as we're standing there, I was a, a cop in the squad as like a training period. I hadn't even gotten to the squad yet. And it was, you know, again, what, where are we going to breakfast? As <laughs> the person's lying right in front of me. Oh. Now I'm not, a, I don't get queasy. I'm not a queasy person, but it bothered me because it was like, you know, and that's the, um, that plays into a lot of the uh, gallows humor, right? It's how we cope. It's how some of us cope. But when it really matters, like we need to take a closer look at the culture that protects us uh, yeah. and, and when, when it really matters. Yeah. You said you got into peer support. You became a crisis counselor. Yeah, I um, the NYP has an amazing, uh, through the health and wellness section, uh, a peer support program. I was in cohort four. So at the beginning of the peer support program, not sure where they are today. Uh, I know they've really, really grown. And the goal was at the time to put a peer support counselor in every command. Mm. Uh, and I was the peer support person for for cold case after doing that i needed more right it was showing me a whole it was part of my my wellness journey and i was learning and learning and i just i just started to get hungry for more information and you know the pandemic happened and all the angst we'll say from the public to police and the pandemic happened and they actually sent us home i remember being in in, in my office in gold street in cold case uh we were sent home and police don't, police don't get sent home uh, but they told us to work from home, which meant just stay home and we'll let you know what happens. Because uh, so of COVID. Because of COVID. Uh, that <laughs> didn't last long. Okay. Uh, but I had gotten I gotten sick at that point. So I was home for quite a while. Oh. And I just, I needed to do more. I started volunteering with a, cri a crisis center in Long Island and then transitioned over to becoming a, a crisis counselor with them. Now at that time, towards the end of my career, I'm a peer support member in cold case. I'm a crisis counselor. And then I just, hey, that wasn't good enough for me. So I, I, uh, while I was out, I took a John Maxwell life coaching course and, and got certified through the John Maxwell team. And it just kept opening doors and, and opening avenues of thought that I had never traveled down. Many have said, many cops have said, you'll know when it's time to retire. And I absolutely love cold case work and I didn't want to leave. And once I started to dive into the mental health space, I felt it. I felt I identified more with that work than what I was currently doing. And I knew at that point, okay, that's what they mean. You'll know when it's time. And I made the decision to retire. And a lot of people will say, oh man, you retired because of, you know, September of 2020, you retired because everything that was happening. I said, no, I just got really good timing. Uh, <laughs> it, just, it just worked out. Well, before I continue with this, I you said how much you loved cold case work. But we also talked about how hard it was. <laughs> what did you love about it? Oh, what did I love about it? Um, I had uh, amazing partners that I investigated these cases with. You know, just on the uh, on the superficial level, I love traveling, right? I love traveling domestically, internationally on these cases. Uh, I never thought that I traveled to more places after leaving the Navy, and I did in cold case. The people that I, I got to help, again, I'll tell you, Miss Brazell and I are, are still friends today. And that's what I enjoy the most. I told her that we had somebody and she came to the, the command and just to thank me. That's it right there. That's, that's everything. That's absolutely everything. Because I have kids. 
I mean, I couldn't even pass. I couldn't imagine having to go through what these family members have gone through. And that's why I did it. That's why my partner Evelyn did it. That's why my partner Steve did it. That's why every cold case detective and detective and person that puts on that uniform that's willing to give their life for you does it. Going through, like we described a little bit, the struggles, it's, uh, I got to the point where there's, I thought, you know, there's no reason why another cop has to hurt or struggle or have a damaged relationship or have a damaged marriage or just struggle as hard as they're struggling. If I could go through what I did and get to this point, well, so, so can you. And I needed a me then, mm. right? So if there's one person that can be helped through podcasts, through reading of somebody's story, through hearing it. If there's one person, then all of it is worth it. And yes, I loved Cold Case, but it was as difficult as it was. I would just, I would do it all over again. And a little differently, but I would do it all over again because they can't speak. You become their voice. Yeah, You're the end of the road. You're the last hurrah in getting justice for them. I, and I know all the other detectives that that had the privilege of working on these cases feel the same way. It's, it's a huge responsibility and we take it very serious. That thank you means everything to the patrol officer on the street. The thank you means everything to the detective. And it must hurt so much more when people think you don't care and aren't trying. I've learned a long time ago, I can't make everybody happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't like what you've done or said. And as long as you go into the things you do with a good heart and you know, you're doing it for the right reasons, those, yeah. those comments and those, those opinions uh, bounce off a bit easier. Yeah. Um, the ultimate reward is to know that, um, that person has been found out, right. That they're not living the rest of their life thinking that they got away with taking another life. Right. Um, there will be nothing I do. I enjoy what I do now, but there'll be nothing. I think that rises to the level of uh, hunting those that, that decide they want to take another life. Yeah. There's nothing that will compare to that. Yeah. Oh. Well, I do want to touch on your book. I know that you're yeah. I, I mean, talking about peeling back the onion. I know you said that writing this book is doing that for you. What is the book about and how is it affecting you? Yeah. So thank you for asking. It's, um, a passionate labor of love for the past couple of years with my amazing partner, co-author Barbara Rubel. Barbara's uh, parents were both NYPD cops mm. and her dad died by suicide. I um, connected with her on her book, but I didn't say goodbye. I read it. I was affected by it like we spoke about before. And I, again, threw an idea um, and we, we wrote Living Blue. Uh, should be out in the next month or so, uh, hopefully. And we go from recruit to and through retirement. We talk about everything. Obviously, we talk about suicide. We talk about moral injury, vicarious trauma. We talk about, uh, we talk a lot about retirement. A lot of times people forget the retirement piece, which brought with it for me and I know many others, its own set of complex challenges. It's for not only officers, it's for everybody living blue, mm. right? Mm. Uh, my wife came up with that name and it's so perfect because we all know someone that's living, you know, an officer. And those people are living blue right there with them. They're there waiting for them to come home. Uh, they're there waiting for, uh, hopefully never receiving that phone call and what, what that entails and how that eats away at you. So it's for them and it's for all the practitioners that have the privilege of caring for our cops. So it's, it's, for, uh, it's for a lot of folks. What I'm most proud about is not the words of Barbara and I. We have over 50 
quotes and contributions from commissioners all the way down to rank and file. And it's the words of all of those folks that are going to be heard in this book. We're so excited to share it with everyone that'll hopefully read it. I did. I, you, you referenced retirement. It's not easy, is it? No, it's not easy. And we forget that we, I got on the job and in this profession as a still kid and we're still yeah. developing and we're still learning and we learn around other cops that are in it or have been doing it, right? You learn the good, you learn the bad. And then we get out, whether it's in my, after my amount of years or, or my partner, Steve's amount of years, 40, and we get out and we expect to recognize who's looking back at us. And that's a scary thing. It's a brand new relationship. We have to get to know that person all over again in a different way. We have people that have been waiting at home for us that haven't seen us in 20, 30, 40 years or haven't haven't received us in, in our entirety. And now those are new relationships. Even though they've been around, those are new relationships. And that's a scary place to be. The retirees need to be taken care of as well because of all those years of service, now's not the time to start forgetting about those that, that used to be in uniform. Because uh, in their minds, it's still very much a part of them. It's very much a part of mine. One of the things that was incredibly difficult for me is, you know, being now retired and so far removed when officers Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora were murdered in Harlem a little while back, feeling at least believing in that moment that I couldn't do anything to help. And I, I realized that I couldn't be hands-on per se, but I was able to be, and I remember uh, my, my old partner, Kevin, and I spoke around that time and just being a listening ear to somebody else that is maybe still on the ground and still in it is a way you can give back. But uh, yeah, the retirement's a, a tough. In So Office Rivera and Mora were killed in January 2022, responding to a domestic violence dispute. Yeah. Domestic calls are some of the most dangerous calls. And yeah. too often we see officers lose their life on domestics. Yeah. You were talking about this in the context of being retired and your identity has to be tied up in being a police officer. And then when you're not anymore, it's just. Yeah, it's uh, and I think we spoke about this, but uh, it's certainly uh, worth repeating. And anytime I could convey it to another officer, I'm happy. And it's that we're human beings that happen to be police officers and not police officers that happen to be. Yeah. Uh, human beings. And when we get that mixed up, uh, it's where we get into a lot of trouble. Uh, we are more than just the uniform. Even from recruitment, when we start focusing on the human behind that uniform, then we'll have healthier cops. Mm. Not after the fact and trying to yeah. say, well, how do we stop suicide? Let's work on the human. And then that'll in turn work on the officer. Yeah. Well, we've talked about a lot of the hard parts. In looking back on it all, can you say what the rewards were? There's many, but the reward is having the privilege to be the person who, again, during cold case, provided closure to so many families that struggled to find it, to be somebody, even in this, the, the simplest of settings, that gave somebody that was going through their own stressful day, maybe they were robbed, maybe, maybe their identity was stolen, maybe they lost something in reporting that they lost their wallet or their purse. And you gave them a little bit of peace and happiness in their day. These, this is what cops are doing day in and day out. It's happening as we're talking. That's making somebody's right. day better than it was. That's a reward. That's a reward. Yeah. You work so much as a crisis counselor and doing your own work, helping others. If there's a message you've said a few times, if there's someone listening who's struggling, what would you tell them? Yeah, just simply, um, you're not alone. 
even though you might feel that way. That whether there's a retiree listening, whether there's a rookie cop listening, if you are struggling, I don't care if it's financially, I don't care if it's emotionally, spiritually, in your relationship, even though you might feel that you cannot come back from whatever damage you think you might have caused in your own life and in the lives of the people around you, and you don't think there's any coming back from it, um, you are 100% wrong. I felt that way too. I felt that I wasn't worthy of coming back. I felt that I had done too much damage, but I'm talking to you today. So it can happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. Ask yourself the questions of what don't I know? What haven't I tried? Challenge yourself. If we put all our work into investigating a case, put work into investigating your own, your own case. How can you solve this? Please stay curious, want to see what tomorrow looks like and ask for someone to help show you that. Yeah. And we should add your, your family, like you, you are still married and I you have am, a relationship with your kids. Yeah. How uh, <laughs> my wife put up with me for so long. I have no idea. We met when we were in the Navy. Uh, and yes, we wow. celebrated 20 years married a couple months ago. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. yeah and my children don't hate me. So that's a, that's a win. Um, <laughs> um, so if you're listening, yes, miracles do happen. Uh, somehow surviving uh, three years in the military and 20 years in the police department is is, uh, is miraculous in and of itself. Well, and we don't often, you know, think about the families. I have said law enforcement is a family job. It's It involves everybody. It sure does. And they're a big piece of the, the, the mental health puzzle that, that can't be forgotten. Well, thank you. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for sharing your stories. Well, thank you for asking me. I want to thank Jason for his time today, and as I said, for sharing these deeply personal stories and for his message of hope for all those doing the job or retired from it. You can find out more about him at his website, jasonpalamara.org, and that's spelled P-A-L-A-M-A-R-A. I'll put that link in the episode notes. It includes information about his work as a keynote speaker, his customized trainings and webinars, all designed to provide practical and immediate solutions when it comes to ensuring the mental health and well-being of our first responders. As I said, I'll put that link in the notes and you can find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. There you can keep an eye out for news about his upcoming book, Living Blue, helping law enforcement officers and their families survive and thrive from recruitment to retirement. I am very much looking forward to reading it. I'll close with a quote from his website. He writes, I find there to be no greater mission than of giving your fellow human being the hope that tomorrow is a worthwhile destination. Thank you, Jason. And thank you all so much for listening. You are what keeps me going. Feel free to contact me at my Instagram on being a police officer or at my email address, which I always include in the episode notes. Thanks, everyone.